0: The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com/slash premium. It only costs five dollars a month. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation, to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what All of the major stock market averages in the U.S. finished the day with strong gains on Friday. The Dow Jones Industrials is up better than 330 points. That is a 1% gain. The S&P 500 rose by 1.9%, the Russell 2000, 1.7%, and the NASDAQ was up 2.8% on the day. In fact, the Nasdaq is the only one of those four market indexes to finish the week in the black. The other three indexes lost ground on the week, despite recovering most of those losses on Friday. And in fact, all four of these indexes still have gains on the year. But what's going on so far in 2023 is you're seeing a reverse rotation out of the value-oriented stocks that did well in 2022 into the beaten-down growth-oriented stocks that fell apart in 2022. Now, a lot of people are obviously betting that there's going to be a rebound in those names. Now, some of this could be short covering where people who were short those stocks want to flatten out and take profits, but I think other people are tempted to buy this dip they're bottom picking. They think if we buy some of these really beaten down names, those are the names that are more likely to recover in 2023. But I think the fundamentals that were driving the rotation out of growth stocks into value stocks in 2022, those fundamentals aren't going to change in 2023. In fact, they're going to get even worse from the perspective of growth-oriented stocks. And so after this Correction, I expect these growth names to roll over and make new lows sometime in 2023. In fact, I think early in 2023, these gains are going to be lost and these stocks are once again going to be sold because the rotation from growth to value didn't end in 2022. That's when it began. And I expect it to continue in 2023. And it's not just the rotation from growth to value, but the rotation from domestic to international. In fact, even though the U.S. stock markets are up on the year, the international markets are enjoying even greater gains, especially when you factor in the weakening dollar, which is accelerating the size of the gains on foreign stocks when measured in depreciating U.S. dollars And not only are we seeing a rotation from U.S. stocks into foreign stocks, I think we're seeing another rotation from developed markets into emerging markets. And these are new trends that are only just beginning, and I think they have a lot of legs. And I think one of the trends that may have the most legs is the trend developing in gold. Gold once again hit a new nine-months high on the week. We almost got to $1,940 an ounce. I think we settled up around 1927. That wasn't a big gain on the week, maybe up another $5 or so. But we continue to climb a wall of worry in this bull market in gold. Now, one of the reasons you know we're climbing a wall of worry is looking at the tepid reaction we're seeing to these new highs in the price of gold In gold stocks, in fact, gold mining stocks actually slipped a bit on the week, although they did have decent gains today, even though gold was a bit softer on the day. But gold stocks would have to rise about 30% from here to get back to where they were nine months ago when the price of gold was the same as the price is right now. And what this is telling me is that a lot of the gold traders are nervous about this gold rally. They expect it to reverse. If they believed in this rally, then they would want to participate by buying these gold stocks because gold stocks generally are forward-looking. And so if you have a optimistic outlook for the future price of gold, you would be more inclined to buy gold stocks than the metal itself. But because most investors don't have that optimistic outlook, they're not buying these names. And that is one of the reasons that I expect this rally to continue is that it's on nobody's radar. Nobody is paying attention to it. And those who are don't believe in it. And I think one of the reasons that people aren't paying attention to what's happening in gold is they're being distracted by the sideshow that's going on in Bitcoin. Because gold 6% or so gain so far in 2023 pales in comparison to the 35% or so gain that we see in Bitcoin. As I'm recording this podcast, Bitcoin is trading at around 22,500. Now, I didn't even think that Bitcoin was going to get above 20,000, let alone 22,500. And since we've managed to overcome that overhead resistance, certainly it's possible that we can see a bigger rally. Maybe we can get closer to 30,000 On this rally. Now, it may stall out long before it hits 30,000, but I certainly can't rule out that possibility because what's going on right now is investors are buying the lowest quality names. And I can't think of an asset of lower quality than Bitcoin. And so that's what's going on. In fact, if you look at the gain year to date in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, it's up 47%. So far in the year. So, despite the fact that the parent company of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is about to declare bankruptcy and all the other problems that we're having in Bitcoin and crypto in general, speculators are still snapping up Bitcoin and shares of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Now, even though Bitcoin is up about 35% so far this year, it's barely made a dent in the 65% decline from last year, in fact, even at 22,500, Bitcoin remains close to 70% below the all-time record high that it set in late 2021. But the big difference in the gold rally and the Bitcoin rally is that the gold rally is sustainable and the Bitcoin rally is not. Gold is rallying in a bull market. Bitcoin is rallying in a bear market. And while gold is gonna be hitting new all-time record highs, Bitcoin is going to be hitting new lows, obviously not record lows because the record low is barely above zero, but it is going to be taking out the low that it hit in 2022, in 2023, probably around the same time that gold is hitting new all-time record highs. Now, the reason you're getting all this optimism in Bitcoin and a lot of other assets is that investors are factoring in the Fed pivot. Most people expect the Fed to finish the tightening cycle sometime in the first half of the year. And in the back half of the year, they're anticipating that the Fed starts cutting interest rates. And it's this anticipation of the pivot that is driving this move back into speculative assets. But what the market doesn't understand about the pivot is that if we get it, It's not going to be because the Fed has been victorious in its battle against inflation, but because it has surrendered. And the reason it's going to surrender is because it's going to want to fight a different battle against recession and potentially a financial crisis, because we're not going to have a soft landing. We're going to have a hard landing. And a hard landing with higher, not lower inflation is not bullish for growth stocks. It's bearish. And it's not bullish for Bitcoin, it's even more bearish. But what it is bullish for is gold. And what it's very bearish for is the US dollar. So sometime soon, I expect markets to start reflecting this reality instead of the current fantasy. Now, one of the reasons that so many investors are expecting the Fed to pivot is all of the weak economic data that continues to come out, including the weak economic data that we got this week. While tech stock prices were rising on the week, their headcount was falling. On Friday, Google announced that it's laying off 12,000 workers. That's 6% of its entire staff. This is the largest round of job cuts ever in the history of the company. Now that follows an announcement earlier in the week from Microsoft that they were gonna be cutting about 10,000 jobs. Remember, late last year, we got about 18,000 job cuts coming from Amazon, I think 11,000 from Meta. I was talking about this all last year, not just late last year, but throughout the year on my podcast, I was warning that job cuts were coming in tech, and they're still coming. This is not even close, to the end of the layoffs, we're still near the beginning of what's going to be massive reduction in the workforce of these companies. And of course, some of the companies are going to see 100% reduction in their workforce because they're going to end up going out of business. And all of this is going to add to the problems for the economy, but also it's indicative of problems for these companies. Now, the initial reaction To the job cuts may be a boost in the stock price because the immediate effect is lower costs and so higher profits. But the reason these companies are laying off staff is because the business outlook for their goods and services is deteriorating. And so if the company is going to do less business, it needs less workers. But ultimately, the fact that it's doing less business means there's going to be lower profits, but it also means that the growth rate of those profits is coming down. And a lot of these tech stocks, of course, trade at high multiples. And those multiples are a function of two things interest rates and growth rate. The lower the interest rate, the higher the stock price. The higher the growth rate, the higher the stock price. But we have two things happening we have interest rates going up and growth rates coming down. That's a double whammy on valuations. And so, After this sucker's rally ends in these tech stocks, look for the sector to make new lows. In the meantime, the laid off workers who have to replace the job they lost are most likely gonna take a job that pays less than the one they had because these tech companies were among the highest paying jobs out there. And so workers are losing good full-time jobs, benefits, high salary, And when they go into this weak labor market, they're likely to have to settle for one, two or three lower paying, maybe full, maybe multiple part time jobs without benefits to take their place. And they're going to end up with lower overall earnings, but they're having to spend more time to generate those earnings. And all of this is ultimately another negative for an already weak economy. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile that supports my thesis that the economy is in fact weak and getting weaker. Earlier in the week, we got the Empire State Manufacturing Index number for January, and the consensus was for minus 8.1. And that would have been a slight improvement over the minus 11.2 that the index measured in December. The range of estimates went from a high of minus 3.1 to a low of minus 11. The actual number came out at minus 32.9. Now, that is the weakest number we've had since May of 2020. And of course, in May of 2020, we were under full COVID lockdown. So you have to go back to that time period to find an Empire State Manufacturing number that low. In fact, this is the fifth worst reading In the history of that survey, if that wasn't bad enough, the following day, we got the retail sales numbers for December, and there was supposed to be a drop of 0.8, and that would have followed what was originally reported as a drop of 0.6 in November. Well, the November decline was ratcheted up to down 1%, and the December decline ended up at minus 1.1%. So a bigger decline than people thought and a downward revision to what was already a decline in the prior month. And in fact, if you X out vehicles, the prior month's drop of 0.2% was revised to a larger drop of 0.6%. And what was expected to be a 0.5% drop in December ended up being a 1.1% drop. And that was way worse. Than the upper range of the consensus, which went from a gain of 0.4 to a loss of 0.8. And then if you take out vehicles and gasoline, the same thing, the prior month's minus 0.2% was revised to a minus 0.5%. And while they were expecting minus 0.1% for December, we actually got minus 0.7%. Again, well above The worst case scenario contemplated by the consensus, which ranged from a plus 0.5 to a minus 0.2. And remember, none of these numbers are adjusted for inflation. So despite the fact that everything we're buying costs more, we're still spending less. And so that means real sales are plunging because people are buying a lot less. They're just paying a lot more for what they're buying. But even with the higher prices, overall sales are still declining. Also, on the same day, we got the release of the December industrial production numbers. And once again, much worse than had been expected and more downward revisions to previous months. So the industrial production number for November was originally reported as minus 0.2. That got revised to minus 0.6. It was supposed to come out as minus 0.1 for December. Instead, it came out at minus 0.7. Manufacturing output also weaker than forecast. The minus 0.6 from November was revised to minus 1.1. And instead of getting a minus 0.2, we got a minus 1.3. That blew away the consensus. And again, way worse Then the range of forecasts, which went from a high of minus 0.1 to a low of minus 0.5. Remember, we got minus 1.3. And then even capacity utilization tanked, it was supposed to come in at 79.5, which would have been a slight decline from the 79.7 from November. Instead, they revised down November to 79.4, and then December collapsed all the way down to 78.8, again, way below the range of estimates that went from 79.3 on the low end to 79.7 on the high end. We blew away the low end. These are all bad numbers if you're hoping for a reduction in inflation, because what they show is that the economy is less productive. If we're not producing as much stuff, then the stuff that we are producing is going to be more expensive. Because we have a reduction in supply, we still have demand, and so prices are going to go up. Now, speaking of prices going up, we also got some inflation data that day as well. We got the December PPI numbers. We already got the CPI numbers for December. They were better than expected in that the increase was less than expected. And the same thing happened with the PPI. The consensus was for a decline of 0.1, and instead we got a decline of 0.5. In fact, that was a bigger decline than even the biggest decline expected because the range went from up 0.1 to minus 0.4. So this was good news for the markets. In fact, the year-over-year PPI number, which was 7.4% in November, it was supposed to drop to 68 in December. Instead, it went all the way down to 6.2%. Now, ex-food and energy, that number matched expectations. It was supposed to be an increase of 0.1. We got an increase of 0.1, but that was a reduction over the increase of 0.4 from the prior month. And year over year, ex-food and energy prices are now up 5.5% on the wholesale level versus 6.2% the prior month. So the markets liked this number, and that was part of the reason for a rally that day was the reaction to this better-than-expected news on inflation. But you have to remember that all this better-than-expected news on inflation is transitory. So it wasn't the increase in inflation that was transitory. That's permanent. What is transitory is this slight decrease that we're enjoying now. And again, prices are still going up. They're just not going up as fast as they were, but all of that is temporary because the reason that we saw a decline in the rate of increase of prices was because we got a correction in commodities, in particular oil prices. We've also got a decline in longer term interest rates that has affected mortgage rates and probably other debt payments that are being made that is helping to reduce somewhat the rate of increase in costs that businesses are experiencing. But all these factors are temporary. Commodity prices have already really reversed their decline. They're on the upswing. And in fact, one of the reasons that we got the big drop in commodity prices was the strength of the dollar. But the strength of the dollar completely reversed in the fourth quarter of 2022. And that weakness has continued in the first quarter of 2023. And it looks like it's going to continue not just for the remainder of the quarter, but for the balance of the year. I still think that 2023 could end up being one of the worst years ever and maybe the worst year ever for the U.S. dollar. And that weakness is going to help propel consumer prices much higher. And so I believe that after this transitory reduction, in the acceleration in the inflation rate, I think we're gonna head higher again and that before the year is over, we're gonna be printing year-over-year increases in the CPI that will eclipse the high from last year, which I think was 9.1%, unless of course, we rejigger the CPI before then, so that in the future, the CPI will understate the rate at which prices are increasing by an even greater margin than the rate that it understates it right now. Then, yesterday, we got the Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index for January. And this one wasn't weaker than expected. It was actually a little bit less weak than expected, but it was still a weak number. The consensus was for a minus 10.3. And instead, we got a minus 8.9. And the prior months, minus 13.8, that was revised to a minus 13.7. So, A tad less weak than was originally reported, but this is still a weak number. And then today we got a very weak report on existing home sales, even though the number was slightly better than estimates. It was still a weak number. The consensus was for 3.97 million homes to be sold during the month, and we actually sold 4.02 million. The prior month's 4.09 million was revised down slightly to 4.8 million. But the month-over-month decline was minus 1.5%. And that was an improvement over the upwardly revised minus 7.9% from the prior month. And the year-over-year decline was 34%. And that was an improvement, again, from the upwardly revised 35.5% decline year-over-year November. But since the 34% decline represents the entire calendar year 2022, it's even more significant because the 34% decline in home sales in 2022 represents the single largest drop in home sales ever, at least as long as they've been keeping track. Now, that is significant because that means the drop is bigger than it was during COVID, it's bigger than it was at any point during the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, Great Depression. In fact, it's bigger than any year during the Great Depression if they were keeping track of the numbers back then. I'm not sure, but this is a very significant decline, and it also has very ominous implications for the economy in 2023 because a lot of economic activity that shows up in GDP is related to home sales and the turning over of homes. But to the extent that homes are not selling, people are staying put and they're not moving to another home, then that's likely to have a negative effect on GDP. So all those people that are still clinging to the false hope that the economy is going to experience a soft landing are not reading any of the very bold uppercase letters clearly written on this collapsing wall. In fact, while I'm on the topic of clueless people who can't read the writing on the wall, this week featured the annual party that goes on in Davos, Switzerland. Every year, when you get a lot of very wealthy people, along with leading politicians and central bankers from around the world, they all converge on one of the most expensive ski resorts in the world during the height of ski season to really have what amounts to a party, a paid vacation. I don't mind if private individuals and companies wanna waste money sending their people over to Davos to party and ski, but I have a big problem when it's government officials or central bankers who are going to this party on the public's dime. That is a disgrace. It is a complete waste of money. The people that think anything is getting accomplished at Davos are clueless. Nothing is happening at Davos other than maybe backroom deals that might benefit some of the people who go there, but they certainly don't benefit the people back home who couldn't even afford to get to the party, even if they got an invitation. I remember Davos back in 2008, and this is just months before the financial crisis when there was plenty of evidence that a financial crisis lay dead ahead, and these guys had no clue. Nobody was worried about it. Nobody was talking about it. In fact, one of the most frustrating parts about what's going on in Davos is the hypocrisy, because you have a lot of very wealthy people that flew into Davos on their private jets, and now they're talking about climate change and how we have to use less energy in order to avert this major climactic crisis, yet they're flying in on private jets. If they really cared about the environment and climate change, they would just have this whole conference virtually. There's no reason to meet in Davos. In fact, if they're gonna meet, they can certainly meet someplace where the hotels are less expensive and the meals are less expensive so that the taxpayers who are footing the bill for their political leaders and central bankers who are coming to this party they could do it at a more economical location. But again, if your goal is to minimize your climactic footprint, then why meet in person at all? Can't they have these discussions virtually? Haven't these guys ever heard of Zoom? No, of course, they all want to go there. This is a fun party. And when you have so many people, again, who couldn't even afford to come to this party if they had an invitation, struggling Why are we forcing them to foot the bill for this party? Because all these governments that are spending money to send representatives to Davos, where are they getting that money? Well, they're just going to print it. There's just going to be even more inflation. And so if these governments and central bankers want to fight inflation, how about starting by not sending your representatives to Davos? Yes, in the scheme of things, it's not going to make that much of a difference given how much inflation they're creating, this could be a spit in the ocean, but at least symbolically spit because at least show the people that you care a little bit about their suffering. In fact, you had people like Christine Lagarde, right, from the ECB, talking about how the war is a problem or COVID was a problem, but none of these central bankers are really accepting any responsibility because the ECB is a much bigger threat to Europe at least from an economic perspective, than COVID was, or even the war for that matter. And the ECB was making these monumental monetary policy mistakes long before the war in the Ukraine, long before COVID. They just made even bigger mistakes after COVID than before COVID, but the mistakes started a long time ago, and they're not accepting any responsibility. In fact, the closest I heard of any central banker accepting some responsibility was the chairman of the Swiss National Bank. And he said, and I'm quoting, with the benefit of hindsight, monetary policy was a little bit too expansionary. And he's talking about all the central bankers, not just the National Bank of Switzerland. Now, first of all, at least there's an admission of some culpability here. But he's trying to say that the only reason that we now know that monetary policy was a bit too expansionary is because we have the benefit of hindsight. So in other words, it's not really the fault of the central bankers because nobody can foresee the future. So sure, it's easy now with the benefit of hindsight to realize that monetary policy was too expansionary, but how can we expect policymakers to see into the future? Clearly by claiming that it's only now with the benefit of hindsight that we know that we made a mistake he is in effect making excuses for those very mistakes. But of course, we didn't need the benefit of hindsight to know this. It was obvious in real time that monetary policy was too easy, too expansionary. So we didn't need the benefit of hindsight. That's BS. There were plenty of people, myself included, that were warning about how excessive policy was and what the implications were for the future. In fact, you shouldn't even need a warning. It should have been obvious to anybody who maybe didn't flunk a freshman course in economics, let alone somebody who actually graduated with a degree in economics, should have known that printing all this money, especially when fewer people were working, was going to send prices soaring. But then to say that with the benefit of hindsight, monetary policy was a little bit too expansionary, it wasn't a little bit It was way too expansionary. That is probably one of the biggest understatements of the entire conference. But again, the entire forum was a complete waste of time and money. Instead of worrying about this distant threat of climate change that may or may not be real, what they should be worrying about is a more immediate threat that is real, and that is the debt. Not just the debt being run up by the United States but the debt being run up by a lot of these governments around the world. Where are those warnings? Why aren't these so-called experts in Davos warning about that? You know, the threat to the world is socialism. What we need is less government and more capitalism. Where are the calls for that? Where are the calls for deregulation? We need governments to cut regulation. We need freer markets. We need honest money. We need interest rates that are determined by free market forces, not fixed by government central planners masquerading as central bankers. No, you're never going to get anything like that coming out of Davos. The only thing that the Davos partygoers ever advocate is more government. They've never spotted a problem that they didn't think the government could cure, even though the government actually caused the problem they think they're trying to solve. And of course, governments have caused a lot of other problems that they haven't even recognized yet. Now, while they weren't talking much about government debt at Davos, they're certainly been talking a lot about it here in the US as we are now above the official debt ceiling, which I think is 31.4 trillion. As I'm recording this podcast on Friday afternoon, the national debt is above $31.5 trillion. And there is a lot of discussion about raising the debt ceiling again And there's some Republican opposition to doing that. Of course, there was no opposition when the Republicans had the White House and both houses of Congress. Then they had no problem raising the debt ceiling. Now, all of a sudden that you have the Democrats in the White House and the Democrats in the Senate, the congressional Republicans now want to get some spending cuts as the price to pay for increasing the debt ceiling. But the most significant point that is lost on everybody when we discuss raising the debt ceiling, is that the ceiling isn't really the issue because the ceiling is self-imposed. So we decide how much money we're going to borrow. But ultimately, it's the lenders that are going to be calling the shots. They decide how much they're willing to lend. And when we get to the point where lenders don't want to lend anymore, that's game over because we can't just raise the lending ceiling beyond where the lenders are willing to accommodate it. And in fact, if you listen to the comments made by Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, she admitted that if we do not raise the debt ceiling, we will default on Treasury debt. Now, this is tantamount to an admission that the U.S. government is running the world's largest Ponzi scheme. And it's not like this is the first time they've admitted it. So it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. They have been admitting this for many administrations. And the reason it amounts to an admission that it's a Ponzi scheme is what is a Ponzi scheme? What is it that makes something a Ponzi scheme? Well, it means that you pay out your old investors by getting new investors. So there isn't a return that is being generated. The only way you get money to pay the earlier investors is if you can take money from new investors. And the reason that Ponzi schemes always collapse is that you run out of new investors and then the whole thing falls apart. I just watched the Netflix documentary on Bernie Madoff, and the reason that Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme fell apart, it's not because government regulators figured it out. In fact, it was the opposite. What are the good things about This documentary is it shows the incompetence of the SEC. But not only did the SEC not figure out this was a Ponzi scheme, even though they had all the evidence handed to them years in advance, and then they went and audited Madoff and still didn't discover it was a Ponzi scheme, but the SEC's official endorsement of Madoff when they came public and said, we investigated him and everything looks good that resulted in a huge inflow of new money into the Madoff-Ponzi scheme, because there may have been some people that were naturally skeptical of those returns, and so they stayed away. But once they got the good housekeeping seal of approval from the U.S. government, well, a lot of people now felt the coast was clear and they wanted to invest money. One of the points that the documentary is trying to make is that, you see, we just need better regulators. We need more regulation. What is lost on the producers of this documentary is that that won't work. What this proves is that we don't need an SEC at all because the SEC did harm, not good. Had we had no SEC, like we didn't have an SEC when the original Charles Ponzi pulled off a Ponzi scheme, the market sniffs out these Ponzi schemes a lot quicker and brings them to an end before you have the type of losses like those experienced under Madoff. And that is exactly what I've been saying on this podcast. But the reason I'm bringing this up now is I'm talking about Ponzi schemes. And in fact, when Bernie Madoff was interviewed by the New York Times, he actually pointed out that the United States government was running a much bigger Ponzi scheme than the one he was. And I remember, and I used to joke about this, but the New York Times said that, well, we shouldn't pay any attention to Bernie Madoff because he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't have any credibility. And I would say, well, wait a minute. He's got credibility about one thing, Ponzi schemes. He knows them when he sees them. And so if Bernie Madoff accuses the U.S. government of running a Ponzi scheme, that's a credible accusation because he ought to know. And in fact, that's what I used to joke, that instead of putting Bernie Madoff in jail, we should have made him secretary of the treasury. Because one of the things that Bernie Madoff knows that apparently Janet Yellen and other secretaries of the Treasury don't know is that when you're running a Ponzi scheme, you don't tell anybody. You keep it quiet. You see, that's the key. That's Ponzi 101. But no, the Treasury Secretary actually tells people it's a Ponzi scheme and they don't care. And probably the reason they don't care is because they know that the US government is never going to default because it doesn't have to worry about getting new investors, it could just print money. In fact, there was somebody at Davos, I don't remember who it was, and he was being interviewed by Steve Leesman of CNBC, and Leesman asked him if he was worried about the size of the debt. And he said, no, I'm not worried because we have something called a printing press. Yes, that's even more worrisome. The fact that they have a printing press, that's what we need to worry about. And the more debt you have, the more you have to worry that the government is gonna use that printing press because they can't possibly repay the debt. Now, the reason Madoff's Ponzi scheme fell apart was not because the regulators put him out of business. The 2008 financial crisis put him out of business. Now, ironically, that was also caused by government. So the only way the government put an end to the Madoff Ponzi scheme was by creating the 2008 financial crisis. Now, what happened was the financial crisis was so bad and the stock market dropped so much that a lot of Bernie Madoff's customers needed their money back. Now, of course, Madoff didn't report any losses because he didn't have any real trades. He was actually reporting profits while everybody else was reporting huge losses. And so a lot of Madoff's clients needed money. And so the only account they had that went up was Bernie's. And so they tried to withdraw some money. Of course, they got all these people wanting to withdraw money, but nobody wanted to put any money in because everybody was losing so much money. And so that's when the Ponzi scheme fell apart because they couldn't get any new investors to pay off the old investors. Well, that is exactly where we are with the national debt. And that's what Janet Yellen admitted. Janet Yellen said, if we do not raise the debt ceiling, meaning if we can't borrow new money, then we can't pay back any of the investors who already loaned us money. In other words, the only way America can repay its bills is by borrowing more money from new investors so we can pay off the old investors. That is the exact definition of a Ponzi scheme. The only difference is this Ponzi scheme is being run out in the open by the US government and Bernie Madoff's was a privately run scheme that was being run in secret. But just like Madoff's scheme collapsed, this scheme will eventually collapse. And the way it will collapse is the lenders won't want to lend anymore when they recognize that it's a Ponzi and they realize the only way they're going to get repaid is with inflated money because the federal government is going to have to print money because there's no way to actually repay through legitimate taxation then nobody is gonna wanna buy US Treasuries. And so the only buyer left will be the lender of last resort, and that's the Federal Reserve. But when 100% of the debts are being monetized by the Fed, in fact, not just the new debt, but all of the maturing debt needs to be monetized by the Federal Reserve, because everybody else wants to take their money and run. Nobody who owns Treasuries wants to roll them over They just want to get their cash while they can and get out of Dodge. Then you don't just have an inflation problem. You have a hyperinflation problem. Now, the other statements that are being made that always bother me every time we're talking about raising the debt ceiling is you'll hear members of the Biden administration saying that we have to raise the debt ceiling because America always pays its bills. And if we don't raise the debt ceiling, then for the first time, we won't be able to pay our bills. That is complete nonsense. The reason we have to raise the debt ceiling is precisely because we don't pay our bills. If we paid our bills, we wouldn't have debt. The reason we have $31.5 trillion of debt is because those are $31.5 trillion worth of bills that we did not pay. Instead of paying our bills, we borrowed all that money. And so the reason we want to raise the debt ceiling is not so we can pay our bills but so we can continue not paying our bills and instead running up a bigger debt. Because if America wanted to pay its bills, it could pay the bills. We don't have to raise the debt ceiling to pay the bills. We just have to raise taxes or we just have to cut other spending so we have enough money to pay for the spending that we wanna prioritize. But we don't wanna do any of that. We don't wanna be fiscally responsible. We wanna continue being fiscally irresponsible and we want to raise the debt ceiling. That's what's so frustrating about all the people who are saying we need to act responsibly and increase the debt ceiling. The responsible thing to do is not to raise the debt ceiling and for the first time actually pay our bills. The other thing that bothers me is when members of the administration say how America has never defaulted on its obligations. And so we need to raise the debt ceiling because it would be a huge disaster if for the first time America had to default. And that's not a true statement. America has a history of default. That's what we did in 1971, because prior to 1971, all Federal Reserve notes, and that's what they were, notes, were obligations to pay a fixed weight in gold. That's what we owed. So if you owed a Federal Reserve note, the Federal Reserve owed you gold. That's what the note promised to pay. Well, what happened in 1971 was that we defaulted. We told all of our creditors who were owed gold that you were going to get none of the gold that the Federal Reserve was obligated to pay you. In other words, it was a complete default. It wasn't just a partial default. We didn't tell our creditors that they were going to get less gold than what they were owed. We told them they weren't getting any gold at all. It was a complete default. So if America was willing to default on that obligation, why wouldn't it be willing to default on the current obligations, which aren't even as great as having to pay gold because all we're paying is dollars and we could print those at will. You see, we can't print gold that has to be mine. It's easy to print dollars. But again, that's why we may not default on this promise because we can print all the dollars we want. The problem is we can't print any purchasing power. And it's not much of a consolation to our creditors if we don't default, but instead we repay our debts with worthless money.